0: time. This is first time for everything. I'm Jordan Rizzieri.
1: And I'm Adam Richardson. How are you?
0: I'm spectacular, thanks.
1: Wow, spectacular. Okay, I was gonna say I'm good because I don't have a cold anymore, so I feel like a totally new man. I love life.
0: Listen, Adam, I have to tell you something. What? Some friends of mine listened to the podcast and were like, it's nice to know that men all over the world fall apart when they get sick, not just here <laughs> in the United States, so...
1: I thought you were going to say, and they had to stop listening after 30 seconds of listening to Adam. <laughs> no. Because he sounded awful.
0: No. You just sounded Good. like you had the man flu. So
1: Yeah. I've forgotten what it was like. It's tough. It's so tough. But, you know, you get better. You spend the time when you're sick thinking, I took it for granted. I, t- I so took it for granted when I, was, when I was fine, pre-cold. And now I'm post-cold. I've just got a new lust for life. Everything's great. I'm just looking outside at the birds, just thinking what a wonderful world we live in.
0: That is fantastic. I love your positive (laughs) attitude about, about all of of that. Um, Tell me your positive outlook on last week's episode with Poppy Hillstead.
1: I'm very positive about it. It's by far the grossest. I think it was the most revealing about the two of us and obviously about Poppy. Um, Poppy, who has been nominated for a British comedy award this week uh, for her podcast, Poppy Hillstead has entered the chat. So that's very exciting. Congratulations to Poppy. Um, I thought it was great. It was loads of fun. And uh, yeah, I've had a few people reach out to me, uh, remembering a couple of things I mentioned and also reliving some of their experiences. So hopefully a lot more of our listeners have been reminiscing about the first times they got drunk too.
0: Yeah, it it was definitely fun and also weird now that I don't drink to talk about some of those things again. So I also didn't know that you guys don't have red solo cups in the United Kingdom. So good, good to know that.
1: Well, yeah, we can get them, but it's usually if you go on Amazon and type beer pong cups. So they're kind of like their feed, you know? <laughs> That's the only time I've used them. Stag do's for beer pong. Anyway, um, obviously, you know, this is first time for everything. Do you think we need to describe what this podcast is? I don't think so. It's in, it's in the description, but obviously we talk about first times. We talk to a guest about first times, but we've also been trying lots of things for the first time ourselves. And we've got a couple more. New things that we did um, over the past week, which we're going to talk about at the end of this episode. Jordan tried Thai food for the first time uh, and I went on a trip to London. That wasn't the first time I've been to London, but I did do something for the first time whilst I was there. So I do have something to talk about. Um, Before we actually get to that, I mean, listeners won't know this because it's not a video. But Jordan, when we were talking before, I did get a little glimpse. Your T-shirt says, I like Thai food.
0: So my T-shirt actually says, likes Thai food, feminist prose, and angry girl music of the indie rock persuasion, which is a quote from the movie, 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. But I did, I did wear this shirt just because we were going to talk about the fact yeah. that I tried Thai food for the first time.
1: Oh, I wonder if that means you liked it. We'll have to wait until the end of the episode to find out. Yep. Let's move on to this week's guest, who is Sam Kaur who used to be the editor of Kerrang! magazine, which is a uh, magazine that the the pair of us know very well. And obviously that comes up early in the chat with Sam. Um, And he is now managing director at Alternative Press, which I called Associated Press in the episode.
0: Very different job. Very, very different job.
1: I knew it was an A. I didn't have it written down. And I went for it and I failed.
0: I mean, Alternative Press is basically like the American Kerrang. So this was this was a perfect conversation for me because I got kind of the best of both worlds because I knew both magazines. But Sam's actually going to talk to us about the first time he went abroad to interview a band. And it's a band you have all heard of before, which is very cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we've got a couple of extra stories trapped in there as well uh, with, again, some other well-known bands. Jordan and I talk a little bit about bands that we've gone to see abroad or traveled to see or seen whilst we were abroad so that's really fun as well um and yeah i think there's lots to to enjoy here so let's get straight to it shall we so i'm, I'm keen to, to start sam obviously we're going to be talking about um some great stuff. A lot of listeners will have, well, all of the listeners will have seen what we're going to talk about from the title of the, of the podcast. I just want to know how you end up in that, in that position. How do you end up uh, sat on a plane about to go abroad with, uh, I'm guessing, a band you're an absolutely massive fan of uh, to do some crazy trip that we're going to hear about? H- how do you get there? How do you get into that position? So the,
2: the answer I would like to give is that I'm uh just so supremely talented and brilliant and knowledgeable <laughs> and excellent at everything that I do and, and that's why I I get those opportunities. Um the, the actual truth to it is like um a lot of it is just hard work, luck, perseverance, like um just trying to, you know, push yourself to the front of the queue, to, to be the people that, to get that opportunity. Um, without going into a really long biography of my career, I'd spent maybe five years working in, in media in various magazines, and it's a very incestuous industry, and everyone gets to know everyone and bumps into people at various things. And along the way, um, through a combination of gigs and festivals and playing five-a-side football with various members of staff, I kind of got an in at Kerrang, um, which is, you know, the world's biggest kind of rock music brand um, founded in 1981. Um, so in 2011, it would have been, um, there was an opening came up for, for a role there and I was put forward for it by a couple of people that worked there. And... Um, and that's how I got my foot in the door at Kerrang. Like I'd, I'd done some music writing and stuff before and, I, you know, obviously I've been incredibly passionate about that kind of field and and those genres for a long period of time in my life. Um, so it was really like a dream come true to get that opportunity. But, you know, was I, um, did I get that opportunity by being the most overly qualified person for it? Probably not. I was just in the right place at the right time and wanted it more than anyone else. Um and then my career just kind of snowballed from there. And before you know it, you're sat on a plane going on the other side of the world. I mean, even now trying to make sense of it, of going, I don't really understand why this, why I'm the person that gets to do this. But
1: pure luck would be the short answer, I suppose. <laughs> well, I mean, I I know um, from being a friend of your brother's that I used to talk to him about it, the, the hours that you would put in, uh, the, the the amount of work you used to do. Uh, and also not just, you know, in the office at the actual day to day of the job, but then going to gigs afterwards, going to the pub afterwards, you know, someone's got to do it. You've got to socialize. You've got to meet people. The real, the (laughs) real
2: hardships of the
1: job. (laughs) Yeah. But no, but but
2: no, you know, genuinely I did spend many years before I got into, uh, Kerrang. mm -hmm. You know, I worked a pretty, um, I worked a job at a men's magazine as like a sub-editor, which for anyone that knows the industry is kind of the least glamorous role in the world. You're there to correct other people's mistakes. Um, it's a job that has no glory and no rewards to it. You, you can only do it wrong. When when something's done right, the writer and the editors are amazing. When something's done wrong, you blame the sub-editor. Um, so I spent years doing that and then working in office, finishing my shift and going home and and writing freelance for other magazines about the things that i wanted to write about until midnight one two o'clock in the morning and then getting up and doing it all over again so
1: crazy yeah so um obviously a lot of listeners will will be well aware of kerrang and it's a magazine that i used to buy regularly when i was in my teens uh, mostly for the posters uh, to to stick on my walls but um jordan what was your relationship with kerrang
0: um, as we have established on a previous episode of this podcast, my one of my very best friends is someone I met when I was 15 years old. She's the person I got drunk with for the first time when I was 19 and went to visit her. She used to mail me Kerrang! magazine. So I would get Kerrang! like late and she would mail it to me and sometimes we would argue about whether or not it still had the post. So like if it was a band I really loved that was in the poster, she would save me the poster, but most of the time she she kept the poster. But yeah.
2: what What bands were those that you that you wanted the
0: posters of Oh you could you can't tell from my fringe. Like I was really big into all of the emo bands in, you know, the mid mid two thousands. So like if it was a My Chemical Romance poster in the middle of the magazine, then I needed to I needed to have it. But if if it was a Green Day poster then Lindsay got to keep it. So there were there were some some limitations to what I was allowed to to have. <laughs>
1: Oh dear. So Sam, you um, obviously started at Kerrang! and you ended up being editor there Uh, and obviously that's a role that you've since moved on uh, from and are now uh, doing something very exciting which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about uh, at some point. But at at what stage did you start doing these things where you were going out on the field a bit more and and were trusted to go and actually spend time with these bands in person um, to, to do these features for the magazine? Was that before you became editor? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. A fair bit before that. So I, so I started at Karanga's uh, news editor, which is kind of the, um, the, the sort of various rungs of the ladder I suppose that people go up, you know, um, a lot of people start off as kind of the reviews editor there because that's a very sort of admin-based job, um, you know, it's compiling all of the release data, all of the, as it was back then, the promo CDs that would come in, now it's all sent on streams, um, sending those out to writers, having the copy come back. Uh, And editing from there, kind of the one step up from that was news editor, which sort of looked after the front section of the magazine, Um, and at the time helped out a bit on the website as well. That was very, um, it was a really good like learning curve for me um, to to come in at that level. It you know it, it offered a bit of creative freedom, but it was also very structured, so it really allowed me to kind of get my feet. Um, under the table with the industry. And then from there, most people would become features editor and then deputy editor and then editor, um, which are all roles that I did across my 10 years at Kerrang. So, I mean, to answer your question, which kind of sort of feeds into the the sort of the first story, I guess, of this is like um, I joined in January and I remember in December of that year, I'd gone on holiday to Scotland uh, with my partner at the time um, and we had like a cabin in the middle of nowhere and we just sort of wanted to get out of the city and I think we got there and on like the third day I got a text from my boss saying, um, is there any chance you can come back a little bit early, um, there's a job we need you to go and do. And I was like, okay, what is it? I don't really want to cut my holiday short. And they were like, uh, "Yeah, we need you to go to, um, we need you to fly to like Los Angeles tomorrow, um, to go to Malibu, um, just up the coast from LA, and uh, go and interview Black Sabbath, who are in Rick Rubin's home studio, um, making their first records with Ozzy Osbourne for thirty-five years, I think it was at the time." Um, and it was like, "Oh, um, okay." <laughs> and to be and to be honest, like you know, I. I did have a moment where I, I did say to my editor at the time, like, do you really think I'm the best person for this? Like, you know, there was our features editor at the time, a very dear friend of mine called Nick Ruskell is like a black Sabbath obsessive. Um, you know, there is, there is no one with a greater knowledge of that band than, than he, and he couldn't make it. Um, so it kind of got passed down to me and I was like, yeah, okay. Oh <laughs> so my I had to God. Uh hot foot back down from the Highlands down to London to, to get on a flight to Malibu the next day, which was pretty wild.
0: Had you had you ever been to America before?
2: I'd been to America a few times just as like, you know, a whole day with my parents as a kid. Okay. Um, but this was uh, the first taste of it is like a work assignment. Um, so it was pretty wild. It was, it was pretty head spinning couple of days. Um, and it's funny because um, i sort of learned in the time since, and music journalism's changed now. That these opportunities come up less and less as you know people can do things over Zoom. They can do things remotely. You don't need the expense of necessarily sending a journalist to the other side of the world, um, unless you're really trying to get that journalist to, to write something nice. Um, but most of those trips, you would travel with a label representative. You travel with a photographer. You're well looked after over there. You have schedules. You, you really, you're, you're babysat. You don't have to do anything. Um, you know, you sit in your hotel until you're told where you're going or when you're going. And then you go for dinner afterwards and you fly home. On this trip, it was, cause it came together so quickly. It was like, just, just get on the plane. And by the time you get off the plane, we'll have emailed you the details. And it was like, Okay, so is anyone coming with them? No, no, you need to go on your own. Where am I staying? We, we haven't figured that out yet. How am I getting to the hotel? Haven't figured that out yet. When is the interview? Yeah, we'll answer all of these questions. Just get on the plane. And I <laughs> promise you, when you get off in like nine hours or 10 hours, however long it is to LA, um, you will have these answers in your inbox. So that was also kind of an extra level of terrifying to this. Of I've never done yeah. this before and I don't know what I'm walking into. <laughs>
1: Oh man, yeah, the uh, imposter syndrome must have set in. I mean, I get that with all sorts of things, but this is actually a massive deal. Like you're you're getting on that plane to meet these heavyweights, especially in the industry that you're working within. So, did you? I mean, what was the assignment with with that kind of thing? Is it that you're going there and you're going to kind of be a fly on the wall and then write a piece about what happened, or are you going to get involved and, and start interrogating and having actual question and answer sessions?
2: So kind of all of that is like, um, all of that is pretty well orchestrated in advance. You know, it's agreed with a publication and a publicist and a label of what the piece is going to look like, what your access is going to be like, what time you'll have available. Okay. So at the time, um, <clears throat> the piece was that it was kind of this world-exclusive first announcement almost that Black Sabbath were in the studio together. Um not the original lineup bill ward the drummer wasn't part of that sessions but it was the first time in 35 years that um ozzy osborne had recorded with tony and Amy and Geezer butler so it was it was the the reformation of, of that trio um and the piece was that i would go and spend a day with them in the studio there would be some interview time with them to ask them about the project how it was coming together um and if they wanted to they might play me some music um that was completely up to them as, as to what they wanted to do on the day. But really, it was a bit of a kind of a fly on, fly on the wall <clears throat> um, report of the making of this record with, I think we had like about an hour or so to sit down with um, with Ozzy. And uh, it just transpired to be Ozzy and Giza at the time, because um, Tony Iommi, was, um, he was ill with cancer at the time, so he wasn't in the studio on that day. Um, but I sat down with Ozzy and Giza and we spoke for an hour about what they were doing and what they were up to. And, um, Rick Rubin was producing the record and they were recording at his, um, his Malibu home studio. And he just wandered in just like halfway through and sat down and was just like, anything you want to ask me? was like, no, because I hadn't planned that you were going to be here, I'm afraid. Sorry. (laughs) Um. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, but all of those sorts of things, they're, they're agreed in advance and you kind of, you at least have an idea, I suppose, of what you're going to be walking into. It doesn't always go to plan. Um, mm. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, to be honest, that, that one didn't really go to plan because um, at the time, this isn't a secret; this has sort of been uh, well discussed. Black Sabbath were in something of a dispute with Bill Ward, the drummer, about whether he was going to be a part of this record. And just before I sat down with my interview, I had a a very burly, angry manager uh, come very close to my face and remind me very politely and forcibly that the band would not be talking about Bill Ward. And if I was to ask any questions about Bill Ward's lack of involvement in this record, that I would be rather unceremoniously back on a plane back to England before I could blink. so, you know, you have already mildly terrified of this environment anyway. And then you have that. And literally sat down and waited for Ozzy to come into this sort of living room area. And the first thing he does is he walks in and sits down and goes, bloody hell, this Bill Ward stuff. And just goes on about Bill Ward for 10 minutes. So oh, I'm just sort of no. sat there like... And you can sort of see the manager behind him just sort of like roll his eyes and throw his arms up in despair and just wander off and it's like well i didn't ask about bill ward so
1: <laughs> i'm okay yeah yeah true If somebody else brings it up, what can you do you can't shut them down can you no exactly
0: i don't think anyone's ever shut up ozzy osborne so um it would be amazing sam if you were the first person to ever do that
2: it's it's he is i've interviewed well i've that's the the first the first, maybe the only time that I've formally interviewed him, but I've met him at a few other occasions when he's come to the Kerrang Awards and things like that. And he, he is not a man who... Um, interviewing him is a real challenge because he's, he's really lovely and he just sits down and talks. And keeping him, on a, um, keeping him on the topic you want to talk about is somewhat difficult with Ozzy. just sort of bounces, bounces around the room like a <laughs> firework. Um, and you kind of get to the end of your time with him and go... I really hoped that I got what I needed <laughs> I have to listen to this back afterwards and see whether i did but um but yeah he, he was he was great and it was it was an amazing experience
1: so w- it was it literally just in and out you know you were you were straight back on a plane once that sort of period had finished, or did you have any time out there, or how did that work out
2: so i did like i think i i spent about an hour at the sh- doing the interview with the guys and then they did play me some music. I think they played me three songs. I seem to remember, just sort of sitting in this little, um, in this sort of little listening booth um, with Ozzy on my right and Rick Rubin on my left, and I'm kind of the sandwich in the middle with my little notepad, just being like, I'm "That must tra- be just <laughs> it's, so awkward." It's terrifying, right? There, there is nothing. <laughs> yeah. there is nothing worse in music journalism than having to listen to someone's work while they're sat next to you in in any capacity. Um, yeah. So I'm sort of sat there trying to make notes that are legible to me, but aren't legible to someone else that might look at my notepad, Um, which is quite helpful because I I do know shorthand. So I sort of, I mean, my handwriting is appalling. It's basically a hybrid of shorthand and and long form anyway. But also Rick Rubin is renowned for having this very particular kind of studio vibe where he just almost Mm. lies back in this kind of It's not like a shade lounge, but it is that kind of like reclining chair. And he just lies back and puts his arms behind his head and like he's on a beach and just kind of listens. And then at the end of a song, he will maybe ask them to do it again or play it again. So I've kind of got Rick Rubin to my left doing this. Ozzy Osbourne kind of like really, you know, trying to get the vibes going. And an utterly terrified 26-year-old me or whatever I was at the time, just being like, don't say something wildly inappropriate (laughs) like look
1: enthused how much should I be nodding my head or smiling or should I just be yeah oh it's crazy I wouldn't know what to do um and then sorry and then to, to actually answer your question so after that I then
2: um I think I sat and had a conversation with Ruben for about half an hour while my car was while my taxi was waiting to turn up which was super cool. He he's such a music fan, obviously. Mm. You know, I know that's I know that's the first thing that everyone says about Rick Rubin, but he is just a music obsessive and I remember he, he he just he basically asked for my iPod at the time and just scrolled through it and went, Oh, I've heard about this band, what you know, tell me about them and just went through. <clears throat> I'd maybe made or broke some careers in that because I'd be like, Oh yeah, they're great, or no, I'm not really into that. And you know, <laughs> he squirrels away that information. And then it was you know, back to my hotel. I think I had like that evening I'd arrived the evening before, and then I think I had that evening on my own devices to just wander around Santa Barbara, I think it was the last time and and sit in a bar on my own, which, which is great because I'm a big fan of American sports, so I like those ridiculous, cavernous sports bars that America seems to have that it's like there's 47 TVs and they're showing different. Sport at all hours of the day, um, so I think I just went and sat in one of those for like six hours <laughs> while there's beautiful Californian coast outside. I was like, now nah, I'm going to watch this college basketball game <laughs> until my plane takes me home.
0: <laughs> Honestly, nice. the most stressful thing you have described so far is the idea of handing a device with my taste in music to Rick Rubin. Like, I would, I would be like, no, I don't have anything to give you. I'm so sorry. I'm all I brought was this pen and paper. <laughs> nope.
2: There's also that sort of terrifying moment of going. I really hope there's some music on this that Rick Rubin produced, <laughs> and that this isn't just like a graveyard of Rick Rubin's music. But there was a lot of Slayer on there, I think. So, as a man who signed Slayer to his label, it was. I, th- I think I managed to get a pass
1: for you. Uh, just to bring it back real quick to the uh, sports bar thing, just because uh, Jordan has recently started getting heavily into football, soccer. For all the American people who are listening and is a Liverpool fan
0: yes I am a Liverpool
1: fan and Sam is I mean, a Liverpool I mean, fan there
2: aren't, there aren't any other teams to support so, so there I you mean, go
0: I think there are lesser teams to support <laughs> um, like in League 1 and 2 but yeah that's the only Premier League team as far as I'm concerned
1: let's bring it back
2: let's say this is not <laughs> this is not in Adam's no wheelhouse
0: Adam you're doing a lot better than you were so it's it's okay thank you yeah. thank you so much mm-hmm.
1: I'm not going to reveal who I support to people who are listening who don't know. Anyway, so, I mean, I know, Sam, that you've got plenty of other stories um, uh, sort of similar along the same lines, going abroad with a band for whatever reason that may be. But I just wanted to bring it back to before that, to things that perhaps Jordan and I might have in common with you, which is sort of just going abroad to see a band in general. So long before you were... I mean I'm guessing you may have done this before you were working at uh, Kerrang can you remember the first time you went abroad to see a band even if it was just again going up to Scotland or heading you know to Ireland anything it. like that I mean does
2: Wales count because I went to university in Wales
1: <laughs> well it has to count because <laughs> one of my
2: stories is, is uh, going to Wales Right. <laughs> um, I went to Wales for a fair few gigs after I lived in Cardiff for three years um, I mean I don't remember a lot of them because I was a student at the time but I'm sure they were great um, <laughs> Did I ever go abroad for a gig? Do you know? I don't. I don't think I did prior to um, prior to joining Kerrang. Like England and Britain is so amazingly well served mm. with um, as a you know as a touring destination for artists, um, especially American artists. You know, it's. I mean, England can even be a, a bigger territory for a lot of them than than their home nation. Um, the, the music industry has always sort of had this like. It's not an unspoken rule, but um, previously, like lots of American bands would come to England, play England, and then they would try to sort of transfer that buzz back to the United States because, I mean, where do you even start if you're trying to break the States? Whereas you could come to England, you can tour it very easily, you can get around the entire nation. There's a really strong music press here. Um, So a lot of labels with their developing smaller artists they would bring them to the UK and kind of break them here and then go back to America with that buzz of like, they've broken England and suddenly America would take notice. Um, Guns N' Roses being a really famous example of, of a band that, that the label did that, did that with. Um, their like first big shows, their first magazine looks, everything was in, was in England. And then they sort of transferred that buzz back to, back to the States to break them. Um, so no, I, d- I don't think I ever did. Um, went to a lot of football matches abroad, but not, not gigs, I don't think. And, and don't since bring then. Bring it you know, back to
1: Liverpool again.
2: Oh, that's the last one we <laughs>
1: need.
2: Well, when you're like wildly successful in the European cup, which hey. is something your, your team wouldn't understand, Adam. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of opportunities to, to what travel abroad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, gigs, I mean, considering how well traveled I've been for the past, 10, 11 years, however long I've been doing this now. Mm. Um, I don't actually think I went to a gig outside of Wales or England yeah. uh, before then.
1: Well, I, I, I haven't done anything spectacular. Um, just a couple of sort of like, well, the one the one that I did do where uh, it, was, it was a Radiohead gig in t- about 2001-ish. And I think uh, what happened was we booked tickets and we thought we were going to go and see them in Newport on the Isle of Wight. And then a couple of days before, my friend realized that it was actually Newport in Wales. Uh, so I think somebody had already arranged ferry tickets and things like that. <laughs> not not that much of a big deal. Um, it, it made the drive slightly longer. Um, it does mean you know, have so. to end up in Newport in Wales, which not the most yeah, glamorous I think places. it was, um, was it TJ's? No, it was it was like this big state, Tredegar house or something like this, like okay. this big... Um, I was going to say stately home. It was, it was a weird... They had a big tent. They put. They did a tour where they put up a big tent in lots of fields. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think
2: Newport's musical claim to fame is that TJ's in Newport is where Courtney Love was introduced to Kirk Cobain. I think, if I've got oh. that right. I think.
1: Okay. You might
2: have to fact check this before it goes out, but...
1: Nah, you used to edit Kerrang! We'll, uh, there is <laughs> yeah. something...
2: I'm 98% sure that's correct. There's something very famous in uh, Nirvana's history to do with TJs in Newport, and I'm pretty sure that is it.
1: Okay, we'll take that as gospel, but yeah, Yeah, maybe we'll check. Um, And then the other, I mean, I never went abroad to see bands, but a couple of times I went to Amsterdam and I saw The Strokes and I saw um, Riders on the Storm, which was two original members of The Doors. I think Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, and then... um, the guy from The Cult, the lead singer from The Cult was fronting okay. them at the moment, Ian Asprey. Yeah. Is it Asprey? Something like that. That was, that was fun. That was good. But yeah, I've never sort of gone out of my way to get on a plane to see a band. And then we come to Jordan because you have done that, haven't you?
0: Yeah. A couple of times. Couple of times. Um, so when I was living in Buffalo after college in 2011, we went to Toronto, which is in Canada, to mm-hmm. see Portishead <laughs> in an airplane hangar. And it was so cool. It was definitely one of those things that because it was open at one end, right? Like the whole thing was open at one end. And then the stage was at the other end that when you turned around and looked out the back of the airplane hangar, you could see the whole Toronto skyline. And it was just one of those things where I was like... This is really cool. This is just happening to me right now. And it was, it was a very random thing. A girlfriend of mine had bought two tickets. I think she was hoping a guy that she liked would go with her. And instead she was like, do you want to go to this? And I was like, yeah, let's spend the, we'll take the day off. It was like a Tuesday. Let's take the day off of work and we'll go and spend the day in Toronto, which I had never been to before. And Mm -hmm. it was beautiful. And also Portishead is amazing live. They're so good. And I feel like they're a band that when I tell people I've seen them in this country, most people haven't, unless they're older than me. They've never really gotten the chance to to see them. And then in 2018, there's a festival I never remember the name of that happens in London, and it's like curated by an artist. Um, tomorrow's Parties? No, I can't think of what it's called. It's like over the course of, it starts one weekend and then goes through the week and ends the following weekend. And the year, 2018 was the year that it was curated by Robert Smith. Um, and oh, is it,
2: is it like the South Bank? So it's, yeah, is it like yeah. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but I know where it is.
0: And that is an insane venue. I've never been in a venue that looks like that before. I was like, my dad would, my dad has built most of the furniture in our house out of different types of wood. And he would go into that venue and be like, I have to touch everything and find out how they (laughs) insure this building. (laughs) And um, but we saw Nine Inch Nails there. And that was really cool because that's like my dream. And I'm sure people who work in music hate people like me. But like I would like to show up and see the band that I paid for and go home. I know what the point of an opening act is, and I respect that. But like four opening acts before I see the band that I paid for, I'm too old for that shit. I can't stay up that late anymore. I don't want the headliner to go on at 11 o'clock. No, I'll never get to the last song. So this was just you show up, and the band comes out, and they play all their songs, and then they leave, and you go home, and that was it, and it was amazing. Yeah, it was great
1: nice nice yeah i'm gonna have to well I, I was gonna say i'm gonna have to you know search something out find a band i want to see I'm, that's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen i'm not gonna go abroad to see a band again i very much doubt who knows maybe if there's like a, a, a band reforms i'll have to have a little think about that um but sam yeah let's take it back to then going abroad with bands um any other you know cool little stories or anecdotes or, or bands that you ended up going abroad with for whatever reason um, i mean the the one that
2: i will always like treasure more than anything because they are like well actually there's two so the, the legitimately probably my two favorite bands of all time so when guns N' roses reformed 3 years ago maybe 4 years ago I, I flew to vegas for the first night of um for the first night of that of that tour um they played this sort of the big new kind of sports arena um that had popped up in on the strip in Las Vegas, and um, I remember pleading with my then editor to let me go. Um, and the problem was, we didn't really have; they didn't really want media there. Uh, they were very Guns N' Roses have a very uh, strained relationship with media in the past, and I think they probably, you know, their team probably looked at it and went, first show of this big reunion tour. We don't know how it's going to go. Um, let's not have media there." So I basically managed to convince my boss at the time to allow me to, like, scalp a ticket, basically. Um, I was like, if I can find a way to get to America, um, can I get enough... But Can I get, like, a 400-pound budget to just, like, buy a ticket while I'm there outside? And he was like, go for it. Like, it's the budget we would assign to a particular size piece. Like, knock yourself out, see what happens. But if you don't get this, then there's going to be a lot of trouble. So I found, um, I found a friend of mine at a, um, at a record label that was prepared to fly me out in exchange for me, doing some work on one of his other artists. So I flew to Vegas, scalped my ticket. The gig finished at about 3 o'clock in the morning. I had a piece to file at 6 o'clock in the morning and then I had to fly back to LA at 7 to, um, to interview this other label's artist in exchange for my flight. So that was just like, as a a music fan, like that was just an unbelievable experience to see like my favorite band who I never thought would reform, get back together. So there's that one. And then probably the the slightly more glamorous one is um, I got to travel around Colombia with Metallica once in 2016, I think, around Bogota. Um, So that was flying out to to Bogota for, I think I spent three days there maybe. Um, They were playing like a huge open air you know, big airport hangar style event. Um, and we were going to do this piece with Metallica in um, in one of the oldest parts of Bogota. Um, it's a very volatile city politically, um, you know, very unstable. Um, and there was this one kind of, it's this one area of Bogota that is absolutely beautiful. It's a real kind of tourist place that everyone goes to have their pictures taken, you know, all the, the houses are painted different colours. Like It's a very beautiful area, but it's also a very poor area. Um, it's quite an unsafe area as well. So the plan was that we would shoot Metallica, uh on the streets of this area um, to kind of the real Bogota, rather than kind of the new built-up city centre. And um, we had to do this job in, in the middle of an absolute monsoon It was like the city was flooded. It was pouring with rain and we're sort of traipsing around the biggest metal band in the world under umbrellas around this um, quite unsafe area with a private security detail. We were each assigned like a, a security guard with a machine gun that is like standing at your side at all times. Wow. And... It was. Kind of, I remember sort of talking to the tour manager and being like, is this really necessary? And it was like, you know, they are as famous and as rich as they are. They are incredibly high profile kidnap targets, basically. Mm. So I was like, do I really need one of these security guards? And I was sort of politely told that my security guard that was with me was, was not really there to protect me if, if something happens. Like they weren't looking after Metallica and I was fending for myself. Thanks very much. Um, But that was just such a surreal experience. And, you know, word gets around that this enormous band are walking the streets of this town. And before you know it, you've got hundreds of kids following you around trying to get things signed. Um, I've actually, there's a photo of it on my Instagram of me, what sort of a behind the scenes picture almost. I'm not even sure who took it of me holding our photographer's lighting gear in the middle of this pouring rain street in Bogota, which is the other crucial part of any music journalist jobs that no one trains you of is that you have to become an expert in holding your photographer's lighting gear. (laughs) (laughs) Because why hire an assistant when you've got this guy next to you who can do it for you? Um, Of course. That was just a completely surreal experience. And so we did this photo shoot and the plan was that we would then sort of drive back to the venue and I would do all my interviews with the bands before they went on stage. And I would speak to each of the four band members for, for 40 minutes, I think it was. Um, I'd already spoken to Kirk Hammett, the guitarist, on the way to the shoot. I traveled with him in his car to do his interview. But the, the other three interviews would be done backstage at the festival. Um, and because the weather was so bad, it took we were so delayed getting to the event that when we got there, it was sort of very quickly like, you can get one of these interviews done and you will have to speak to James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich, which full respect to everyone in Metallica, but those are the two people that you, you know, you really want to speak to in Metallica, um, that I would speak to them later on in the day. So you sort of sat there backstage eating Metallica's catering while they're playing. Um, and then one of their assistants comes over and is like, right after the show, I need you to go and um, sit in James Hetfield's private car. Basically, you'll interview James Hetfield on the way back to your hotel. So I have to go and sit in the back of this car and wait for James to come off stage. And as soon as they come off stage, they all get in their big robes and they get each of them back into their individual cars to get driven back to the hotel like straight away. There's no hanging around. So I'm just sat in this car and then after about 20 minute wait in silence, this kind of hooded figure in this big fluffy purple dressing gown with a big hood on kind of somewhere between your mum's dressing gown and like a boxer's entrance attire yeah gets in and sits in the car (laughs) next to me and the car pulls off and I couldn't see who it was so I just I have to presume that it is James Hetfield and not just this random other person and I am in the right car and uh yeah eventually after about kind of five minutes of him decompressing sort of takes his hood down and he turns to you he's like hi i'm james hetfield (laughs) it's like okay so interview james hetfield for 30 minutes um on the way back to the hotel and then when we get to the hotel, this poor assistant who is there to you know the beck and call of these four band members uh comes over and says right um Lars will talk to you over dinner. At the end of every show, Metallica will always book out a really fancy restaurant and all of their crew and all of their friends, they go there and they have dinner on Metallica. Sometimes the band go if they want, sometimes they don't, depending on their mood. So they were like, go to this dinner, have some, have a drink, have something to eat. Lars will work or meet you there. So I go to this dinner. Uh, I sit and I have... I have some food and talk further with Bob here, the bassist. Um, we drink some wine and eventually it's getting to about midnight and Lars Ulrich is still not here. Um, and the poor assistant comes back over and says, um and Lars got distracted at his hotel watching a film. Really helpful. Um, so can you go back to the hotel, wait in the bar and Lars will come down when he's finished his film. So back we go to the Four Seasons, I think it was, in Bogota, and I just have to sit in this bar until like one thirty in the morning when Lars Ulrich comes down, full of apologies, you know, oh, a, you know, lost track of time, sorry. He's a, he's a big film buff as well, Lars, um, so he, he does very much get into cinema. And we basically sat until four o'clock in the morning, just the two of us in this like shut bar in the Four Seasons, just talking about everything and anything. Um He's also got, he, he has an amazing relationship with, with Kerrang, especially he bought, um, he's basically bought every issue of Kerrang that's ever been. Um, oh, wow. Metallica actually, ad, Metallica advertised once, we dug it out of the archive once, we did an exhibition on Metallica's early days a few years ago. And um, there's a small ad that, that Lars Ulrich once took out in the back of Kerrang uh, looking for a vocalist for Metallica before James Hetfield joined. Wow, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, so you know, you just we just sat talking shit, for, and then the next day it's back on the plane, back to England, Like the piece. There you go.
1: I love the, the fact that you know the bigger the band, the more that you have to f- sort of fit in with their schedule and be ready to to do anything. Oh yeah, I love yeah. The idea of them being like Lars has gone to sleep now, so if you could just wait in his bathroom and then when he gets up for a wee in the middle of the night you'll have five minutes with him <laughs> and you'd be like yeah sure just go and sit there waiting oh dear you've you got to do just what you got
2: to do it's just this wildly swinging pendulum like one minute you are dealing with you know you go and do a piece and it's like here's the drummer's number just just turn up and deal with them and you'll figure it out and then at the opposite end of the spectrum, it's like everything is down to like the exact minute. Like, you have to be here at this moment. Your interview starts here, you have 30 minutes on a stopwatch. Like, when it's done, it doesn't matter if anyone's mid sentence, it's like that's it, they've got to go now. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, you never know quite what you're going to walk into, but
1: keeps you on your toes at least. I bet. Cool. And now, obviously, uh, you've got your new role with the Associated Press. How I mean, obviously they're primarily based over in Jordanland, you're over in England. Um are you gonna be doing much travelling?
2: Uh so yeah, the 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 plan is so alternative press is based between um Cleveland and Los Angeles at the as, moment.
1: I called it Associated Press, didn't I? I'm so sorry. There is also an Associated Press. Yeah. That? Mildly confusing. But um did fuck up there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be travelling over once a
2: quarter, I suppose, but we're doing everything remote, yeah. It's that brave, that brave new world of boundaryless business, isn't it? Um, it so is it? Yeah. So you know, I've I've been with them just literally a couple of weeks now, so I'm still sort of finding my feet. Um, but you know, ten years at Kerrang was just unbelievable, and this was uh, an amazing opportunity to help uh, rebuild. You know, the the other iconic uh, rock music media brand in the world. You know, it is, it's Kerrang in the UK and it's, and it's AP in the States and, you know, kind of having got to the top of the ladder at Kerrang, it was like, okay, it's, you know, time for a new challenge and let's try and, um, revive this, you know, unbelievable, beloved storied brand. Um, you know, it, it will take me a step back. I, I, I'm not sure if we were to do this again in a couple of years time, I'm going to have many more stories of being on the road with bands. Um, that's, you know, that's someone else's life now. Um,
1: or oh, your, your top five uh, Zoom calls with, uh, <laughs> with various people. That will people. basically be it. Like, yeah, that's, your your that's top, it the top five budget sheets that you drew up this, yeah. this past year. <laughs> We might we might need to do that you know might get to the stage where that's all we've got left to talk about so yeah we'll uh, we might hold you to that um yeah i should say that obviously i mean we were looking to well, when we came up with the concept of this podcast we were thinking of different people we didn't just want to speak to you know comedians or uh, other podcasters all the time um we wanted to speak to you know different people who might not necessarily do podcasts very often but different walks of life interesting stories and no, I suggested you fairly early to Jordan and when you were still editor at Kerrang. and then obviously the change came up and uh, Jordan was yeah quite excited about it because I was like I'm not 100% sure what this is I think I've heard of I mean I just called it Associated Press so there you go but, but Jordan you, you were fully aware yeah
0: that was my that was my magazine when I was in high school and college that I got and then if one of my friend Lindsay's bands was in it then I would send it over to England for her so that she could pull all the pictures out of it and read the read the interviews but yeah, that was a that was always a really big deal magazine. I'm very excited to see where you take it and what what you do with it because it definitely needs a little bit of fresh, freshening, fluffing. You know, that's
2: that's all. That's you know, Kerrang was in a very similar position when I took over the editor's chair. You know, it, these things. I I always said, I think I probably always said this young when I was earlier in my career and was kind of frustrated at maybe the lack of you know. Moving up the ladder or how slowly it was taking that you know I think that people really editors especially should not stick around really for more than like two years in their role I did I did just under four as editor of Kerrang, but I don't really count 18 months of it because of the pandemic Um, but you know I think that any editor should be should get into a brand get into a magazine do absolutely everything that they think you know every idea that they have like pour every ounce of sweat and blood and tears and energy into it and then step aside and let someone else who's got that same, you know, that's those same fresh ideas and that same enthusiasm. Um, Because, you know, it's like, I'm not going to pretend that I've done a hard day's work in my life. It's, you know, making music magazines is not difficult work. Um, But, you know, the, the keeping the enthusiasm up for it. Um, over a long period of time. You know, there's only, everything's so cyclical. You know, band releases album, band goes on tour. Band takes a year off. Band releases album, band goes on tour. And, and the longer you're there, the more you see that cyclical nature. And it's like, you know, I was really fortunate at Crown to be able to leave there having, I felt done everything that I wanted to do at Crown creatively, but also, you know, I wanted to work a new Metallica record. I wanted to work a slipknot records. You know, there, there are these artists that you that you look at and you say, I want to be a part of that for a couple of years. Um and I feel I ticked all of those things off in and a thousand things more. Um so yeah, you know, I think it's it's someone else's turn to to do that, Kerrang. And um, you know, looking forward to what we can do at A P to um to you know re energise that a little bit as well.
1: There we go. Thank you so much, Sam. Ah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to see uh, firsthand like you will be able to what he gets up to at Alternative Press, but you'll have to you'll have to let me know. You have to let me know if you see a distinct improvement.
0: Well, you know what? Maybe, Adam, I can start sending you Alternative Press magazine, but you can't have the posters unless, you know, unless it's a band that I don't care about, then you, then you can have
1: them. Okay, deal. What does that mean? Am I going to get all the stained posters?
0: I'm just going to send you lot. I'm actually going to put Slipknot posters into the magazine. <laughs> okay.
1: And then I can use petrol to set fire to them. Perfect.
0: No, I actually like Slipknot. You don't like Slipknot?
1: No, I do. Uh, well, okay. I mean, to an extent. But we'll get into this another time. Um, yeah. So I think we should fact check some stuff because obviously during that episode, a couple of things came up. Um, Sam mentioned uh, TJ's in Newport and uh, the sort of Kurt Courtney connection.
0: Yeah, so I did some research on this and it actually turns out that he was close but not quite close enough. So the rumor, the 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 urban myth that exists is that Kurt proposed to Courtney at TJ's in Newport, but it can't be verified anywhere. There are lots of kind of articles online trying to debunk the myth, but it's one of those things that cuz you know, there were no cell phones and cameras at the time, it Kurt was definitely there. Courtney was playing at TJ's. Hole was was playing at TJ's, and Kurt was there in the UK, in in Wales with her. But we don't know whether or not he actually proposed. But it's not where they met because they were definitely already together at that show.
1: Okay. Sam actually emailed me shortly after uh, we we did, we had this chat, and he forwarded me a similar story, and he was like, "Ah, that was close enough. I was close <laughs> enough." Um and then the other thing the festival that you went to the South Bank the 9 inch nails what, what yeah. was that
0: it's called the Meltdown Festival. And so every year it is curated by a different artist. And as I mentioned in the interview, the year I went, it was um, curated, ironically, by Robert Smith of The Cure. But for those of you who might be interested in musical history, the first ever curator of the Meltdown Festival was David Bowie, which is really cool. Mm. So I'm looking forward to seeing who they might pick. Maybe in 2022, it'll come back. Yeah. It, it was it was really good. And it's interesting to see like the bands that another musician might pick to put together into a festival so
1: cool never been there so maybe i'll go to that and then have something to talk about in a in a another season of this podcast um if you're listening and you have been abroad to see a band or interview a band or you've just been abroad and a band has been playing so you thought you'd check them out and it's particularly memorable you should tell us about it how how
0: well, you could get on Twitter and and send us a tweet at FTFEpod or you can send us an email. And our email address is ftfepod at gmail.com.
1: Perfect. Okay. Well let's talk about the things that we did for the first time this week. Uh we said at the start, your t-shirt says likes Thai food. Is it true?
0: It is. It is true. So hey. I did try. I went very generic and I apologize to everybody who is like a connoisseur of Thai food. But I just started with Pad Thai because I was a little nervous. Um, nice. Some of the food didn't have descriptions of what was in it. And as we mentioned on last week's episode, I can't have coconut. And I know coconut milk is a big part of Thai cuisine. And so I didn't want to ruin the experience. by so accidentally not feeling well afterwards, uh, which would have been entirely my fault. So I just stuck with something I knew didn't have coconut milk in it. And it was really good. And I actually have a group chat of friends from college. And I was like, I know you all eat Thai food. Please send me all of your recommendations. So maybe in the future, what I'll do is like order everything that they like and see like what my favorite Thai food will be. So pad Thai was a thumbs up. So
1: Nice. Have you got any audio to share of you sort of munching through that, like mouthy sounds, a sort of bit of a mix of me doing the hot wings on the ASMR?
0: No, Adam. I ah, didn't.
1: damn. That is a shame. I'm sure listeners were really desperate for that content.
0: The the one thing I realize that we we have not done, and maybe maybe in a future episode we will do, is neither of us have tried cooking anything, because I feel like that would be fun to get some like sizzling sounds and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that would be good. Okay, well, we'll bear that in mind. Um, My first time, as I said in the last episode uh, with Poppy Hillstead at the end of the episode, I said I was going to London for a weekend with my friends. Uh, We were staying in Canary Wharf. It was like a little reunion of the guys I went traveling with when uh, we were 18, 19. And I hadn't picked anything yet, but I was just going to do something for the first time. Uh, And I did. I went to the British Museum for the first time which oh. I guess is pretty mad because it's it's the world's oldest national uh, museum. Uh, so it's been around, you know, for for quite a long time. So, you know, you know I probably walked past it a fair few times. I used to live in London, I used to work in London. I still go to London, or pre-pandemic, used to go to London quite regularly, but I'd never been. So I decided to go along. Obviously, I'm quite aware that it's basically a showcase of all the artifacts that the British Empire pillaged and pilfered and, you know, stole. And so, you know, it's a slightly uncomfortable at times thinking, I'm sure a lot of the people who uh, who these actual things belong to or used to belong to wouldn't mind them back. But it is a spectacular collection. They've got a, a, an incredible amount of stuff there. I've spent a lot of time looking at um, everything in like the Egyptian section. There were loads of um, amazing things, including the Rosetta Stone, which um, for some reason I didn't actually realize was at the British Museum. Uh, so I had a I had a good time sort of staring intently at that. And yeah, we, we were only there for an hour or so because we had a reservation for lunch. But it was good. I felt cultured. I felt like I'd seen some cool stuff. They had some amazing samurai outfits in the, in the J- Japanese section. Um, it was a lovely sunny day. So they've got this amazing roof, um, which uh, lets all the natural light in. It was a good experience. It was a nice first time.
0: Is it now your favorite museum in all of London?
1: No, I think that's probably the Science Museum or the Design Museum or this is more of a gallery, but the National Portrait Gallery, I like going there. So no. Me too. No, it isn't.
0: Well, I think my favorite London Museum is actually the Victoria and Albert. They have just the most spectacular chandelier in the entrance to the museum. I actually
1: don't think I've been there. So there's lots it's to another
0: it. it's another one that has they I think when I went the last time that I was, was it the last time I was in London or two times ago, I went with a girlfriend of mine and we went to see the I think it was a Chanel exhibit, maybe mm. uh, there was a fashion exhibit there that we went to. And there was some interesting there was a, an exhibit around portraiture that was very interesting, but it was definitely the kind of thing that once you got out of that and into the different sections that it was just like. This kind of seems like a graveyard of other people's stuff that we probably shouldn't have in here. So just kind of take some of the flavor out of it. But I like all the design, you know, the ironwork exhibits and stuff like that. That's, yeah. So yeah, the portrait gallery, I feel like it's a little safer.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Have you been to the British Museum?
0: No, I have not.
1: Okay. One day.
0: Well, you know, that day might come sooner than you think, so.
1: Yeah. Intriguing. Because next week's challenge, I don't know how much we want to reveal, Jordan, but it's kind of something that we're doing in collaboration, which I realize this podcast is in collaboration, so it won't be the first time. But you'll get it when we get, get to it. Next week, when you tune in, it will all make sense.
0: Something we're both doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're doing the same thing for the first time. We're doing the same first time thing. That's it this is it
0: <laughs> no we haven't thanked Katie and, and Funkle Albert yet Adam come on yeah Katie
1: Burke uh, does our artwork and Funkle Albert does the music and we're part of the Acast Creator Network that really is it right we can that, say goodbye that is
0: it. it this is it that's it just, brilliant just cut it right cut there. it now and we'll see you next week <laughs> bye bye <Thanks. laughs>